Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God. And we thank You for Jesus, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who came and who represented You honestly and truthfully, who gave His life for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And Lord, I pray that as we open up this book, that like Paul the Apostle, we would be willing to learn its lessons so that we, through the comfort and and hope of the Scriptures, might find in the Scriptures a source of truth, an explanation. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 24, it says, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now there would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You've dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. 
For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, my son Jonathan, and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not, as the Lord lives. Not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he didn't die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and he attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshua, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michelle or Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. As we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel, we remember the whole theme of the book. The people wanted a king. Saul has been selected and Saul has been rejected in chapter 13. Three chapters record three great sins on Saul's part. The sin of impatience in verse thir chapter 13. The sin of pride here in chapter 14. The sin of disobedience we'll see in chapter 15. And Wearsby's divided the chapter into two really big ideas. And last week we looked at the first idea. Faith in God brings victory. That's what we looked at. In verses 1 through 23. And now, foolish words bring trouble. Jonathan has exercised faith. And he's defeated the Philistine garrison. We now see the evil effects of Saul's carnal foolishness. So tragically, it begins with Saul ordering that food be withheld from the people in verse 24. He then instills fear in the hearts of the people in verse 26 by withholding food and then instilling fear 
Saul leaves the people famished and then faint. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 28, the people were faint. And then in verse 32, excuse me, verse 31, and the people were very faint. So think about it. Fearful, famished. The people now feel forced to sin against God. As a matter of fact, in verse 32, it says, And the people flew upon the spoil, and the people did eat with blood. And in the end of the, of the chapter, faith is judged guilty because it acts in liberty. It says at the end, And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Saul is, with, is willing to withhold his stupid vow. His foolish decree he, to maintain his wrong-headed and wrong-hearted oath, even if it means sacrificing the man of faith. And in this particular instance, it's his own son, Jonathan. And that's part of the collapse that we're going to see. Here is a person who would rather kill his own son than repent of his wicked, foolish circumstances. And before you look totally shocked and totally taken aback, make sure that you understand something. That some of you have made some foolish vows and some foolish promises. And when you make foolish vows and you make foolish promises and you're not willing to accept them for what they are, a wrong way of thinking and a wrong way of acting, and you're willing to destroy your marriage, you're willing to destroy your job, you're willing to destroy your ministry, rather than repent, then you begin to understand something that you're acting, acting not as a man or a woman of faith, but a man or a woman of foolishness. You know, the Bible says, having begun in the spirit, are we going to be perfected by the flesh? You see, here's the truth. You're saved by grace. And you're kept by grace. And you're sustained by grace. The goodness and the grace of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So we begin again in verse 24. Look what it says. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had placed the people under an oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now remember the context. Jonathan has accomplished a great victory in faith. And Saul becomes a type and a picture. And I've already told you this. He becomes a type and a picture of the man of the flesh. Saul limits the great victory by acting in his flesh. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Christian talk, let me translate what flesh means. Your flesh is not... The skin and the muscle that hang from your bones. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. And let, let me make sure you understand this. That includes the good things. 
That even includes the things that you like about yourself or that you value about yourself. That includes your intelligence. It includes your vocation. It includes all of the testing and preparation. It includes all of the sum and the substance that makes you, you, apart from Jesus. And so when you act in the flesh, you're using the resources that you bring with you rather than the resources of God. And so the foolish vow, this curse, brings depression. It brings distress. It brings gloom. Saul has ordered something wrong. He's seeking God's favor. And, and see, that's part of what you need to ask and answer. Well, look, his motive is right. He's seeking God's favor. But think carefully. His zeal is misguided. You might look at it and say, well, you know, he wants to do something religious. He wants to do something religiously ritual. Some have suggested, look what he says, before I, have, I take vengeance on my enemies. These aren't just Saul's enemies. Remember, these are the enemies of God. And why are these the enemies of God? It's because they're persecuting the people of God and they're oppressing the people of God. You need to understand something that it's God's battle. And remember what Paul writes in the New Testament. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You may think that your enemy is the conservatives or the liberals. You may think that your enemy is the people who don't philosophically or politically fit into your neat little category. You may think that the enemy are the Mormons and the Christian scientists and the Jehovah's Witnesses. You may peg the enemy as apostate Christianity or radical Islam. These aren't your enemies. These are men and women for whom Christ died. Your battle isn't to battle them. Your battle is against the ideas that separate them from God. So, Saul orders the men to make a promise. He says, cursed is anyone who eats food before the sun goes down, before I take my vengeance on the enemies. So no one tasted the food. David Gusick, in his commentary, he's a, he's a Calvary pastor who's very, very good. He, he writes in his commentary a series of reasons why this is such a bad idea. Number one, Saul's focus is wrong. Saul places the people of Israel under a foolish vow, not in order to glorify God, but to glorify himself. And you see, when you make a religious promise in order to bring attention to yourself, rather than to glorify God, it, does, it has little or no value. And like I said, the focus isn't on the Lord's battle or the Lord's glory. The focus is on Saul's fast. And so not only that, but his motive is wrong. It's possible that Saul thought that he was doing something godly, something spiritual, something pleasing to God. But the more likely explanation is a false sense of spirituality. Remember in chapter 13, Samuel has already said to him, guess what? God's going to take the kingdom away from you. God has assigned the kingdom to someone else. And so he may think that he's doing something spiritual. He may think that he's doing something valuable. But guess what? 
I think the more likely explanation is it's a false sense of spirituality. Or perhaps he thought that the people in the nation would once again value him if he asserts the position of spiritual leader and also his basis of authority is wrong. What right does Saul have to pronounce a spiritual curse on anyone? Is this God's chosen fast? Or is this Saul's chosen fast? And remember, I've told you this over and over again. The very definition of legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. Hey, I'm fasting and so should you. I read six chapters a day and so should you. I read through the Bible every year and so should you. I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do and so should you. It sounds so holy and it sounds so spiritual on the surface. But is this really what God wants? And also, the vow was wrong because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. A curse for not eating. And when you come to the end of the chapter, a willingness to kill your son for sticking a stick in a honeycomb and placing it to your mouth. And the vow was wrong because the timing was wrong. You know what? The Bible says to everything there is a season and a purpose under heaven. There's a time to live. There's a time to die. There's a time to sow. There's a time to reap. There's a time for peace. And there's a time for war. There's a time for eating. And there's a time for refraining from eating. And this was not the time to fast. This was the time to fight. And the troops needed energy. They needed energy so that they could fight and focus. And they didn't need to deal with doubt. And they didn't need to deal with discouragement on a forced fast based on a superficial opinion. Now, remember, remember, there's nothing wrong with fasting. And it's even okay spiritually to fast. The issue isn't a fast. The issue is the timing of the fast. And the vow was wrong because of the results. On the day of battle, they needed faith. And they needed food. And instead of faith, and instead of food, they got distress. And they got discouragement. You know, there's a time when we are rightfully confronted. But the Bible says to confront the unruly, but it also says to assist the needy. There's a time when a person needs a good rebuke. But there's also a time when a person needs a response of encouragement. And so, there are some 30 references to in the Bible to vows. Warren Wiersbe writes, even though Saul was not a godly man, his oath made in the Lord's name was legitimate. And if the Lord ignored it, he would have dishonored his own name. You see, as king, Saul does make the oath. Sometimes when you make a promise to God, even when you do it foolishly, 
even when you do it insincerely, even when you do it with wrong motives, when you make a promise, when you make an oath, God expects you to understand the consequences of the vow that you've made. You know, one of the tragic stories in the Old Testament is the story of Jephthah. Some of you are familiar with it in the book of Judges, chapter 11. You remember the story? He was a judge and he went out to battle the Ammonites, Israel's perennial enemy. And he made a vow to offer as a sacrifice whatever greeted him in the battle. And when the Lord gave Jephthah the victory, the first thing that Jephthah met on the road was his one and only daughter. Now, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when a person makes a foolish vow, a wicked vow, a wrong vow. By the way, does the Bible condone human sacrifice? The Bible doesn't. So if a person says, I'm going to kill the first person I meet on the road, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. People who use the Bible, who twist the Bible and pervert the Bible and manipulate the Bible in order to create their own wicked conclusion didn't begin in our generation. No wonder Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. Verse 34, but I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven because it's God's throne, neither by the earth because it's God's footstool, not by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you can't make your hair white or black because they didn't have Lady Clarol back in those days. You know, now that you can make your hair white or black, doesn't mean that the scripture is false. It just means that dye works. It says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. Here's what Jesus is saying. Christians are encouraged to refrain from making vows either to the Lord or to each other. You know what the real challenge of being a promise keeper is? You become a promise breaker. I swear I will do this. And then you don't do it. Not only is it wrong that you've broken your promise, but now you wickedly put yourself in a position of perjury. So here's what Jesus is saying. Don't do it. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if you say that you're going to do something, do it. It's always suspicious when a person says, I swear to God. Well, what, why, why are you doing that? Well, because, you know, typically I'm a liar and a hypocrite. Because I'm typically a liar and a hypocrite and because my word can't be trusted, I swear to God. By the way, when a liar and a hypocrite swears to God, does that make you want to believe him or her? And so the Bible says, don't do it. Don't do it for a number of reasons. Don't do it because you can't be sure what, what the future holds. We don't always have the facts 
We make promises based on our fallen nature. We make promises based on our immaturity. We make promises based on a lack of critical thinking skills. James said, don't say you're going to go here or there, but rather say, if the Lord wills, say I'm going to go here or go there. Because it's the Lord who's in control. And when the Bible says, and it speaks of the reality that the Lord is in control, it's trying to bring you to the conclusion that you are not. But sometimes you have the illusion that you're in control. I'm in control. I get to decide what happens. Sweetie, you don't get to decide what happens. The Bible says that the sun comes up on the just and the unjust. Typically, every once in a while, I will make this statement from this pulpit. That a person who's listening to my voice won't be listening to anyone's voice a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. Every time I've said that, typically within a month, two months, three months, there's a tragic accident. There's a fatal disease. There's an aneurysm. There's a blood clot. You see, you don't get to order your life. God orders your life. Your days are numbered by God. They're established by the Lord. It is the Lord who is in control. We do things according to the Lord. The Bible says He causes all things to work together for His good. And so we're instructed to say yes or we're instructed to say no. And when you add promises or vows, you create an opportunity for Satan to trap you and to cause you to compromise your testimony before the Lord. Am I saying it's always wrong under any circumstance when you go to court and you place your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you, God, is that wrong? No, but you better make sure you tell the truth. When you stand at the altar and you promise to love and to cherish, when you promise to forsake all others and keep yourself exclusively for that person, so help you, God, is that wrong? No, but you better make sure you keep your promise. I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Saul, the man of the flesh wants to do something religious, so he imposes a fast. Jesus, in Matthew 15.32, when he sees the crowd hungry and hurting and alone, it says, I have compassion on the multitudes because they have nothing to eat, and I refuse to send them away fasting lest they faint on the way. Can you imagine Jesus going, well, you know, they've been listening to me all day, so... Hey, you know what? Well, how about if they just fast for the rest of the next two days as they're making their way back to wherever it is that they're going? Jesus doesn't do things religiously a whole lot, does he? He seems to care about the real circumstances of real people's lives. And in verse 25, it says, Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. You know, the Holy Land was called the land of milk and There's a reason why the honey was on the ground. Because God had made a provision. 
sometimes the most stupid thing that you can do is test the Lord in order to satisfy your wickedness. I'll use myself as an example. When I was a kid in college, I needed $800 desperately to go into the next semester. And I prayed, Lord, I need $800 in order to continue in the next semester. Lord, bring me $800, please, in Jesus' name. The next day, other students came to my dorm. They had taken up a collection for me and given me $800. And I said, I refuse to take it. Because if God wanted me to give, have that money, He would have provided it for me. Yeah, you, that's, that's the right response. You fool, how did you ever make it to the pulpit? How did you ever become a pastor? You knucklehead. How could you be so lame and so stupid and so insensitive? It was the provision of God. You know, sometimes God makes a provision for you. It's right there and you refuse to believe it. In verse 26, it says, And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one, no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Have you ever been afraid to do something because it didn't religiously set well with the people who were around you? You know, that's one of the consequences of legalism. It creates a religion of fear. Of animosity. People live under the constant covering that God, at any moment, for what seems like no reason, is going to bring a club and hit you over the head with it. You know what it's been my experience? But God isn't in heaven waiting to hit you over the head with a club. He might be willing to slap you upside the head to get your attention. But God is interested not in evil, but in your good. It says in verse 27, But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the, the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb. He put it in his mouth and his countenance brightened. It's that super fuel. I, you know, I hear all of these commercials on radio about super beeswax. How it has all of these nutritional components. It's like God's magic food. In a way it really is. You put a little honey in your mouth and you're good to go. And that's what it means. And in the midst of all of that fatigue, his countenance brightened. And in verse 28 says, Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. In every church, in every ministry, There are people who act in grace and in freedom. Don't you realize you can't do that? There are rules. I had no idea. I, I thought I was saved by grace through faith. Look at how long your hair is. Not, I know that's not an issue anymore. I guess I should say, where did you get those tattoos and piercings? You know, in my day, it was... 
hair and long hair. Today it's, well, things have changed. You're either turning gray or turning loose. Pastor Chuck used to say, I used to have this incredible wave, but now I just have a receding coastline. I don't know if Jonathan should have said this in verse 29, but he did. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. Probably what Jonathan should have done was he should have probably kept that to himself. And he should have probably privately said that to his dad. But whether he should have done it openly or whether he should have done it privately, you know what the net result is? He is right. His father has troubled the land. And in verse 30, it says, How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now there would have been a much greater slaughter of the Philistines if we were to act in grace, if we were to act in freedom, if we were to act based on what the promises of God are, that we don't have to be in bondage. We don't have to be in bondage anymore. And God has given us a mechanism so that we could fight and throw off the oppression we should. And in verse 31, it says, Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajilon, so the people were very faint. They worked hard. They worked hard. They pushed the enemy back. But they were very faint. And the reason why? Because they were working under this legalistic restriction and prohibition. God hasn't called you to live a legalistic life, but a life of freedom and grace and mercy. And in verse 32, it says, And the people rushed on to the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a, a large stone to me in this day. Let me help you understand what it is that's happening. Because they were faint and because they hadn't eaten anything all day and because they had fought hard and worked hard that when they finally fell upon the sheep, the oxen and the calves, think about what's happening. The sun has gone down. The the, the oath lasts only so long as the sun is in the sky. And once the sun sets, these people are so hungry that they begin to slaughter and they don't observe the ritual um, slaughter whereby the blood is drained. And so when he says, you've dealt treacherously, roll a large stone to me, it's Saul's way of saying, bring me a flat stone so we can sacrifice the animals properly. Now, remember, the Bible teaches in several places not to eat meat with blood. Deuteronomy 12, verses 23 through 25. Only be sure that you don't eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of of the Lord. There was a reason why the Jews kept kosher, and they were prohibited from eating meat with blood in it. It wasn't simply so that they could be different from all the other nations, although that's one element. It's God was painting a picture, a picture of life, 
Life is in the blood. The Lord prohibited the children from eating meat that hadn't been properly bled out. The point that the Lord was making was that life belongs to God. And this is a a fundamental issue that seems to have been lost, not only on that culture, but our own culture. We sometimes mistakenly think that our life is our own. But guess what? Your life is not your own. God has given you life. It's the Lord who has given you life. It is the Lord who has given you sons and daughters. It is the Lord who has given you grandchildren. You may have famously heard the words of your mother and father say, I brought you into this world and I can certainly take you out of it. Hey, it works. Good saying, bad theology. In a very real sense, they did bring you into the world. But guess what? Life belongs to God. And the people were so hungry that they foolishly failed to follow God's command. And by the way, that's always the result of legalism. You see, when my opinion becomes your obligation, people often are willing to break the commandment of God in order to obey man's commandments. And it seems counterintuitive, but it's true. Jesus told the religious leaders of his own day, you lay aside the commandment of God in order to keep the traditions of men all too well. You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Mark chapter 7 verse 8. What? You would rather keep the traditions of your religion and break the commandments of God? That's the idea. Legalists falsely believe that legalism is what keeps people pure. Hey, look, I'm doing this for your own good. There's a reason why you shouldn't smoke and why you shouldn't chew and why you shouldn't go with those that do. There's a reason why you should cut your hair so that you look properly. It's a reason why you should dress for success. There's a reason why you should do this and there's a reason why you should do that. But all the while, all the while, all the while, legalism leads to the worst kind of sin. Pride. And rebellion. Legalism creates within the legalist's heart a sad statement. Because one morning the legalist wakes up and they discover something about themselves. That they're better than you. They're better than you because they read their Bible every day and because they pray more than you do and because they don't drink and because they don't chew and because they don't go with those that do because their life looks so neat and so proper and so religious. And guess what? God is so happy with them and so unhappy with you. Do you remember what Jesus talked about in the New Testament when two people came to pray before God and the one guy, he, he raised his eyes up to heaven and he goes, Thank you, God, that I'm a Jew, not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I'm a man and not a woman. Thank you, God, that 
I give one-tenth of everything that I make? Thank you, God, that I'm not like this jerk next to me. Look at this filthy, disgusting, homeless person. Look at this filthy, disgusting person who's struggling with sexual addiction. Look at this filthy, disgusting person who's struggling with alcohol and drugs. Look at this filthy and disgusting person who who only barely makes it to church every once in a while. Look at this filthy, disgusting person who doesn't read their Bible like I do. I thank God that I'm not like that filthy, disgusting person. And the filthy, disgusting person bowed his eyes to the ground and he beat his hand on his heart and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus reminds them. Which person praying do you suppose was justified before my father? Saul accuses the people of dealing treacherously, but it's Saul who is to blame. Paul wrote powerfully in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, that legalism has all the appearance of being wise, self-imposed rules and regulations, false humility, neglecting the body, but all of them in the end wind up being indulgences of the flesh. Saul and his pride and his foolishness, and his his insecurity. He sets the people on a crash course with sin. Now don't don't misunderstand me. The people are not to be excused. They're still responsible for their own sin. Each person is accountable before God for their own sin. But Jesus said in Matthew 18, 7, Woe unto them. Woe unto them whom by the offenses come. Woe to the man by whom the offenses come. Each and every person is responsible before God for their own sin. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you become the source of stumbling, watch out. And in verse 34, then Saul said, Disperse yourself among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought the ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Here Saul builds an altar so that the animals can be properly butchered. And it says in verse 35, Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. In the Bible, when the Bible speaks of a, of, of a Bible character building an altar, it means a place of worship. When Abraham built an altar to the Lord, it was the place where he would worship the Lord. When Isaac and Jacob built an altar to the Lord, it was so that they could properly worship the Lord. So here, Saul builds an altar to the Lord, the idea being a place of personal worship. And on the surface, that looks good. Look, look, Saul is coming around. But here's the problem. Saul is living a life of selfishness and hypocrisy, and he pretends to seek God's will, but he is not committed to doing God's will. Okay, I'll go to church. Look, if you just get off my back, I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll pray. 
Look, I know you want me to be religious. Okay, here it is, dude. I'm religious now. Helpful? Is hypocrisy helpful? Is changing the outside without changing the inside, is that helpful? If Saul is still willing to live a life of selfishness and hypocrisy, if he's still pretending to seek God's will, but he's not even willing to follow God's will, you know what it's going to create? It is a recipe for disaster. I'll be honest with you. I have more respect for the sinner. He says, look, I'm a sinner. Born a sinner. Raised a sinner. Live a sinner. But I plan to die a sinner. Then the religious person who comes to church, opens his Bible, reads, and, and the person says, well, you're glad they're here, right? Of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to drive you away. But I don't want to leave you with the illusion that religious activity will somehow substitute for a right relationship with God because you have a right heart with God. And look at verse 36. It says, Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Hey, sounds good to us. Then the priest said, Hey, maybe we should talk to God about this. Maybe we should bring the Lord into the equation. So here's his, here's his midnight plan. Let's just wipe them out. The high priest Ahijah suggests, hey, let's seek the Lord. And in verse 37, so Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Ooh, this sounds good. You know, he's been taught, pray, seek God's will. What does God want? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But look what it says. But he did not answer him that day. I'm trying to do religious things. You told me to pray about it and I'm praying about it. God, do you want me to do this or do you want me to do that? Do you want me to continue in this sinful relationship? Do you want me to continue to do this and that? Do you want me to do this and that? Nothing. I hear nothing. Zero response from God. So what happens to Saul when he gets zero response from God? He has yet one more foolish vow. I didn't hear from God, so here's the deal. Verse 38. Come over here, all you chiefs of the people. Know and see what sin is today. Do you understand what is, what's happening? Saul believes the reason why God won't give him the instructions is because it's other people's fault. It's other people's sin. There's a reason why God won't speak to me. There's a reason why God isn't speaking to me. My husband, my wife, the church, the pastor, uh, the economy, uh, Democratic president. Um, there's some reason why my life is going down the tubes. And whatever that reason is, it can't be me. So... Saul is convinced that the problem lies with someone who's violated his stupid oath. And in verse 39, it says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among them answered. I have to ask you a question. 
if Saul really, with all of his heart and with all of his mind and with all of his soul, believed that it really was Jonathan, would he have made this stupid oath? I think the answer is no. I think I think I, I am willing to give him this much credit that he seriously, at this point, doesn't believe that his son has anything to do with the problem. So he makes this foolish oath. He's so interested in being right that he's willing to compound his wickedness with one more wicked thing. Saul loved being a promise keeper. He loved making religious oaths. He loved making religious promises. But he didn't mean them very much because he wasn't good at having a heart after God's own heart. And in verse 40, it says, Then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, my son Jonathan and I will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Saul fully expects the lot to somehow land with someone over there, but it doesn't. And in verse 41, Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. In other words, he is saying, Hey, Lord, make sure that this is right on. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped, verse 42. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. I'm going to suggest to you he fully expects the lot not to fall on Jonathan, but to fall on himself. And in verse 43, and Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. The lot was a urim and the thumim. This was a, a kind of a device that was used by the priest to sort of narrow down the choices. In, in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And for whatever reason, the Lord allows this to happen. Why do you suppose that the Lord allowed this to happen? I'm going to suggest a couple of things to you. It was to keep Jonathan humble because he had a great victory that day. But it was to expose Saul's hypocrisy. And in verse 44, it says, Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. What a dumb thing to say. What a dumb thing to say. By the way, this is my son Jonathan's least favorite verse in all of the Bible. Here's what should have happened. Saul should have admitted his vow and his command was foolish. He should have been able to say, Lord, in my hard-hearted wickedness, in my selfish foolishness, in my perverse religiosity, I had these people do weird and wicked things, and now I am going to compound my weird and wickedness by doing something even more weird and wicked. You know what the principle is? The principle is if you do something weird and wicked... The best thing to do isn't to do something more weird and more wicked because of what you did the first time being weird and wicked. The principle in the Bible is always stop the weirdness, stop the wickedness, and do what's right at that very moment. But Saul would rather 
kill his own son than admit that he's wrong. What has to die? What loss do you have to experience? What deprivation do you have to experience before you come to that place in your life where you go, enough. It stops here. The foolishness, the wickedness stops here. The end of the chapter deals with Saul's rule. When you come to verse 46, it says, Saul returning from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. The Philistines are going to be expelled for a moment, but they're going to come back. In verse 45, it says, but the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head will fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people, listen to this, the people rescued Jonathan and he didn't die. Here's what's happening. The people praise, they respect, they love Jonathan and they understand something. They understand something. It becomes painfully clear to them. That their king is blind. By the way, should the people have allowed Saul to execute his own son? What do you think? Should the people have allowed Saul to execute his own son? I'm going to give you no. And I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, the oath itself and the pronouncement of death on the oath breaker was a bad and foolish law. When you make a promise to do something and it's wicked and stupid, like, look, I promised that I would marry this unbeliever. I asked her to marry me. Are you not married? No, it's just an engagement. Break the engagement off. But I need to keep my promise. Really? Will you compound your wickedness by doing something more wicked? Well, we were sexually involved and she's pregnant. We've thought about an abortion. Really? You would compound your wickedness by killing the child? The issue here isn't to kill the child. The issue here is to stop what you're doing that's wicked and start doing what is right. The oath was a bad and foolish one. Number two, Jonathan broke the oath in ignorance. True or false? It it was, he did it in ignorance. And number three, God's favor was evident on Jonathan's life. Jonathan was acting in faith. Jonathan was acting in belief. Jonathan was acting in confidence. Now think about this for just a second. Saul's foolish oath. Jonathan's fantastic faith. Which do you go with? So, it says, then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. And by the way, he'll have problems with the, with the Philistines for the rest of his life. It says he establishes his sovereignty over Israel. He fought against all of his enemies. And then he gives the uh, geography, Moab, Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines, verse 49. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshua. Sometimes it's pronounced uh, Ishivi. 
and Malkishua. Three sons are mentioned, Jonathan, um, Ishivi or Jishua, Malkishua. The Bible speaks of Abinadab and Eshbal elsewhere. Jonathan, Malkishua and Abinadab all die with their father later on Mount Gilboa. Saul has other children by his concubine Rizpah, Armoni, and later Mephibosheth. Verse 50, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam. Um, it gives the commander of the army, Abner, Ner. Verse 52, now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the day of Saul. That becomes the important point at the end of the verse. Saul finds himself in a constant battle with a never-ending battle with the Philistine. By the way, he never achieves complete victory over his enemy. You know, there are Christians who never seem to live a life of victory. They never seem to live a life of hope. They seem to live a life of constant oppression. But it doesn't have to be that way. If Saul and the people would have forsaken their sin, embraced and trust the true and living God, God would have given them a permanent victory over their enemies. And there comes a point where you don't have to live in the oppression and the wickedness and the isolation. A permanent victory is available to you. So what's the difference between legalism and liberty? Legalism is when other people's expectations are superimposed upon you. What's liberty? Jesus loves you. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has risen from the dead for you. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit. You have one and one obligation. It's to honor the Father and honor the Son. It's to do what Jesus has asked you to do. And what does Jesus ask you to do? To love the Lord and to love Jesus and to love each other. Have you made a promise to God and then you failed to keep the promise? You know, a broken promise is a serious matter. But it's not an unforgivable matter. You may have broken a promise and you may have broken a vow. But here's what the Bible says. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You may have made a promise and you failed to think through the consequences. But if keeping your promise means dishonoring and disobeying God I'm going to suggest to you don't do it it should stop right here and right now purpose in your heart that you're going to honor him and you're going to obey him and you're going to submit to him and what it is that he wants for you and from you Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We pray that we would learn its lessons. We pray that we would open our head and we would open up our heart. And we would be willing to allow the word of God to challenge us. But also to change us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.